Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's great to be here uh, to discuss these very important issues and to partner with the Heritage Foundation uh, for this timely program. Anna, thank you for that very generous introduction. I appreciate it very much. And on behalf of the Council of the Americas, whose Washington office I've been privileged to lead for almost 20 years, uh, it's a real pleasure to join you and your Heritage Foundation colleagues for this important program today. Other than the COVID-19 pandemic and national economic recovery, there may be nothing more current on Washington's collective mind than China's growing global profile. And indeed, these two strategic priorities have now come together as China moves to strengthen its global position coming out of the pandemic. We see these realities in most emerging markets and certainly across the Western Hemisphere. And so it's time to take stock of where we are and where we may be going and also what the United States can do to strengthen and build a hemispheric community where democracy, open markets, and the rule of law prevail and are fully and strongly supported. And that's one reason why we are so delighted to have with us this morning our keynote speaker, Dr. Bill Cassidy, U.S. Senator from the state of Louisiana. Senator Cassidy has perhaps a unique perspective on these issues as a medical doctor himself and also married to a highly accomplished general surgeon Dr. Laura Casty, who's now retired. He's also someone who, and I can say this with personal knowledge, has taken a real and meaningful interest in U.S. relations with Latin America and the Caribbean. He's traveled to the region on several occasions. He's thought deeply about the issues and what's at stake, and he is a resolute voice for the effective promotion of U.S. interests in a manner that benefits both the people of the United States and also the region itself. Elected to the Senate in 2014, he serves on five committees, including energy and natural resources, of course, being from Louisiana, and also finance. And we are so pleased that he's agreed to join us today to offer his perspective on the China challenge in the region and how to address it most effectively. Dr. Cassidy, it's a real pleasure to have you with us again. You know, if this if we weren't virtual, we'd all be applauding now and we'd welcome you. Uh, we'll have to do that virtually. So please accept our virtual applause uh, and open your mic. And uh, with that, the virtual floor is yours. Thank you again and welcome. Thank you, Eric. It's with humility that I come before you because you are the thought leaders from whom I have learned so much. I also want to at the outset um, uh, credit Maria Sierra on my staff who uh, uh, is just uh, been a godsend to me in terms of helping me understand. My initial interest in Latin America came because it seems as if this is the set of strategic relationships which we almost take for granted. We ignore. We get the bad news. We don't emphasize the good news enough. And, and we, again, take for granted. But we take for granted at our own risk. The degree to which we are not engaged is the degree to which, uh, again, China takes root, Drugs are smuggled in, 
transnational criminal organizations flourish, which arguably do more to undermine our national security, certainly the health of our society, than almost any other entity. If you think about 60 to 100 billion a year being smuggled out through trade-based money laundering and other means related to illicit drug trade and other things, financing uh, criminal organizations and terrorist organizations around the world, that often goes through Latin America, using drugs that come from Latin America, or at least Latin America is a pass-through from a country like China of raw ingredients. We ignore this set of relationships at our own peril. I will also say, we ignore this set of relationships at the peril of Latin America. And I do think if there's a central theme, it's that U.S. leadership is necessary in the Americas, and we have to recognize Latin America as, a natural, as natural allies and strategic partners. Now, some in Latin America might roll their eyes, thinking of times in which the United States and companies within the U.S. have exploited relationships through Latin America for the benefit of the United States, but not for the Latin Americans. Okay, um, if we want to go back to that history, I would argue that history is now being repeated, but it is not the United States exploiting Latin America for its own purposes. Rather, it is China exploiting Latin America for its own purposes. And in the process, setting up strategic entities, the capability for Navy bases, for example, that would choke off, say, the Panama Canal and other things, uh, as, and, and while doing so, corrupting Latin America governments, uh, which is to say, on our doorstep, both depleting the national wealth of such countries, but positioning them so that they would not be our allies, but rather be part of a coalition, if not in spirit, at least in effect, against the United States and the interest of our people. If ever there was a time for a synergistic relationship in which both parties win, if those parties are countries in the Americas, and the United States is one of those parties, now is that time. First, just to say some things that I know everyone already understands, but to say them for context. China has a great interest in Latin America. They're using uh, different um, uh, Western Hemisphere organizations uh, to extend their soft power. Uh, uh, among other goals, for example, uh, uh, having people change their recognition of Taiwan over to a recognition of the People's Republic of China. They're doing this through means such as loans, uh, by which they will, again, lend, but in some cases create such a debt load that the country has nothing, no, no alternative but to look to China for relief, accepting Chinese terms of relief. You can argue that these are predatory loans, uh, they are currently in the Western Hemisphere, the largest lender. Um, uh, between 2005 and 2018, I have lent $140 billion, which is more than our World Bank and IDB have done together. They're investing in infrastructure and ports, which in of itself might be a good thing. But say, for example, if you speak about a railroad in Panama, for which the Panama people never, never envision needing, and which they are going to spend Panamanian money for Chinese workers to build a railroad that isn't needed, uh, but putting themselves in debt to China, you see the paradigm the Chinese are following. It's what they've done in Sri Lanka and elsewhere, and they're using that same blueprint here in the Americas. 
Um, there's also arms sales, military cooperation, and there's also the use of the COVID crisis, again, to be used to the advantage of the Chinese. Now, that's all kind of, hmm, we're worried about. Well, let's just look strictly at a benefit to the United States of just, just independently of the Chinese, of the United States having a greater role in Latin America. Uh, well, one, we already have free trade agreements, so we have a basis by which to proceed. They're a natural um, uh, partner with a young population which is highly educated and consumer-oriented, so it is a natural market. Uh, the more that there is prosperity in Latin America, Central America, and Mexico, the less migration we can anticipate from those countries to the United States. We know this not as a theory, but as um, uh, entities were established in Mexico, net migration from Mexico has ceased. And so we can see that the building up of economic infrastructure and opportunity in Mexico has kept Mexicans in Mexico. We need to do the same thing in Latin America. By the way, I asked somebody, um, who was talking about how when Pancho Villa was marauding through northern Mexico, that was the first big wave of Mexicans into the United States. I said, well, with all the transnational criminal organizations killing people, why is that not happening now? And their simple answer was, it may have been Eric Farnsworth, hey, they got jobs and people stay where they have jobs. If we can create economic opportunity in home countries, people will stay in their home country in the society in which they have grown up. They will not migrate. It is in our vested interest to create that prosperity. Now, we know that if we leave a vacuum, the Chinese will fill, but not just the Chinese, transnational criminal organizations, Cubans, Russians, et cetera, look at Venezuela, um, which we've left a vacuum, uh, but that has been filled. And now it's a major throughput for illegal drugs. China is barter bartering, Russia and Cuba are bartering to get oil for their aid. We now have them supporting uh, uh, a government which has no popular support, but is held up by these other entities. Uh, so what do we do going forward? Again, if we are going to exert U.S. leadership, if we're going to recognize Latin America as a strategic ally, we need a different vision of how we go forward. Um, President Reagan spoke of Central America as being our third border. Um, um, reasonable to see. Can we look at our existing free trade agreements and see how to improve them? Can we begin to move supply chains out of China more to Latin America, uh, both, if you will, giving less money for China to invest back into Latin America, but also putting more money directly into Latin America without that throughput, if you will, and more money going there to create that prosperity? Uh, can we assist in Latin America creating the infrastructure? One thing that I've been interested in, can we use mechanisms such as blockchain in order to decrease financial fraud. If you do that, if the Guatemalans, for example, truly are able to collect the tariffs they are due, as opposed to having those tariffs reduced by trade-based money laundering, in which profit is our tariffs, or um, the amount of money that should be having a tariff applied to it is criminally lowered, then the Guatemalan government has the money to help create the infrastructure that then in turn attracts the foreign direct investment. Um, um, and lastly, I will say that uh, we've seen from the COVID crisis that the Chinese and other Asian countries will indeed shut off the export of goods to the United States that we might need. 
It happened with COVID virus and personal protective equipment. But if there's more geopolitical, um, more geopolitical tension, we can imagine other things as well. If we have a supply chain going through Latin America instead of across the Pacific, inherently, intuitively, that is more secure. So let me just summarize by just saying, I do think that it's important both for Latin America and for the United States that we strengthen our bilateral relationships. The United States is a stronger partner is going to be uh, the leader in this. If we don't, there'll be a vacuum for others. And right now the Chinese are the ones who are doing it to the detriment of Latin America and to the detriment of the United States so, uh, uh, um, national security. Um, um, and our role um, in leadership in the Americas, something we've taken for granted of late, needs to be renewed if we are going to have prosperity for all parties. Eric, I'll stop there. And um, I thank you for tolerating me saying things that I've learned from you. But I just want to give, if you will, the perspective of somebody who hopes to take your knowledge and put it into public policy. Thank you, Senator Cassidy. Uh, very much appreciate uh, your comments and particularly the emphasis on the opportunities available to the United States. Um, I'm a, a fellow at the Heritage Foundation and on the panel, and Anna is struggling with technology right now and trying to get back up and running. So I am going to jump into the discussions now, and uh, we thank you very much for your time and your comments. Very thoughtful and inspiring. Thank you. Thank you, David. I look forward to working with you all. Thank you. Um, as Anna comes back into the conversation, uh, as, as she reboots, um, I wanted to say that we find ourselves in an environment where when I look at Latin America, as we do around the globe, we're in the midst of an information revolution. And the dual use and uh, application of data that is acquired is really the backdrop to my comments about Chinese investment in technology and in uh, telecommunications and other areas that are innovation or innovative in terms of their investment throughout Latin America. And we know that that has grown uh, substantially over the last uh, decade to 15 years and growing at a rapid pace. The Chinese view Latin America from Mexico down through the isthmus of, of uh, Central America and into South America is a great opportunity to tackle issues that, as Senator Cassidy pointed out in the case of Guatemala, addresses on the one hand uh, real needs that these countries have. They have needs related to security. They have needs related to infrastructure. They have requirements to address uh, poverty in significant ways, to increase their trade uh, externally, and even some in the larger economies of Latin America inside their own countries in terms of infrastructure. And so when I think of investments in, for example, uh, Bogota's uh, subway rail train infrastructure of $4 billion that the Chinese have committed to doing in 2019, there is goodness that comes out of that, but at the same time, what they introduce is technology that collects information. It collects information for the purposes of, of tracking people, for uh, uh, addressing their, their needs and, and uh, uh, identification of uh, their, their biometrics and all of that. 
And in this information age that we find ourselves in, we find that the Chinese are leveraging that. And at the very high end of it, it's Huawei and ZTE and building significant amount of infrastructure in telecommunications in places like Brazil and, and elsewhere in, uh, in Latin America for the purposes of collecting that data and using it at will in terms of soft power that they have available to, to them with their investments. And so my, my focus and attention from my career of intelligence and, and national security is really asking the question, what are the secondary and tertiary effects of that collection that the Chinese are doing? And my argument would be is that that is highly valuable data that is collected, harvested, and processed back in Beijing or elsewhere in China on behalf of their national interests. Whether it's done through a back door in the technology or whether it's done uh, simply as part of the harvesting of data as they put in the security cameras and all the other aspects of, of uh, the infrastructure. So th those, are, those are my comments that I think set the stage, particularly when it comes to intelligence and national security and, and uh, the, the environment in which the Chinese are investing in Latin America. And I view it with uh, profound concern because uh, while addressing certain real needs in terms of the population in these countries that are strapped for cash and strapped for foreign direct investment, at the same time, the Chinese are leveraging it clearly to their advantage in a place, as Senator Cassidy said, the United States ought to be far more proactive in terms of seizing the opportunities to uh, enable the technologies related to telecommunications, uh, energy, and, and technology writ large. And so with that, I see that Anna is back. So over to you, Anna. And that I think both question and answer was covered by me as you turn it over to um, our other panelists. No, David, thank you so much for you know, you know, pitching in there in my in my time of need. I greatly appreciate it. Um, uh, I now I invite the other panelists to please uh, turn their cameras on, and just so we can continue this discussion. I think everyone's there. Perfect. Is everybody on now? If we have everybody on, then you know I'd like to to continue on with what David was saying. I think I'd like to turn over the next question to to Eric. Um, I'm my my internet and my computer seems to be a little just not cooperating with me today. But I think can you guys hear me okay? Perfect. All right. So I'm, we're just going to keep this going. All right. So, so Eric, so kind of Eric in this context and with, you know, with Senator Cassidy's remarks, I just, I, I, we just kind of need to pose this question kind of just like for brass tacks, what are China's regional ambitions here? Like, what are they trying to achieve? What exactly is going on? Well, thanks Anna for the question. And, uh, you know, I would certainly affiliate myself with David's comments and really thank the Senator again for his outstanding comments. Uh, China has both a short term and a longer term ambition here. Uh, the short term is to uh, have an economic relationship with uh, the countries of Latin America and the Caribbean, as it does in many countries around the world. And there are aspects 
uh, to that that are positive. Look, Latin America needs infrastructure. China can develop infrastructure, just as David was saying. Uh, Latin America needs growth. Even before COVID, the growth prospects for 2020 for the region were abysmally low. Uh, and now they're going to be obviously much lower. Uh, but Latin America needs growth. They need investment. They need capital formation. They need all kinds of different things, as Latin American leaders themselves will tell you. And if China is willing to engage on that level, uh, there is a positive aspect to that. But the question is, again, as David has already mentioned, what are some of the external, what are some of the externalities that come with that? And I think they're very real. Uh, in the current environment, in terms of COVID, uh, Latin America is hurting a lot. Look, I mean, the, the pandemic has not yet crested across the region. We know the news stories about Brazil and Mexico, but even countries like Argentina and Peru, which got early um, compliments for uh, doing a very good job or a relatively good job to control the pandemic, uh, have now seen some backsliding and, and the other complications. So this is not a story yet that's run its course, unfortunately. In fact, it could get worse before it gets better. And in that context, China has showed up with PPE, with ventilators, uh, with offers of uh, financial forbearance. Uh, the senator was talking about debt trap diplomacy, which is absolutely right. But now if you have the ability to forgive some of that debt, uh, people take that as an attractive uh, offer. Uh, and so China has come in uh, into the context of COVID-19 with things that Latin America and Caribbean uh, leaders want and need. And in that context, the United States uh, has done things to restrict uh, exports of needed equipment or done things that perhaps some in the region find less generous or even stingy. And so you do have a comparative uh, analysis going on there. And that plays very much into China's longer term interest, Anna, which I think is, is the basis of your question, which is to say, at the end of the day, China's not in this for Latin America or the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. China's in it for China, right? And they should be. I mean, that's their national interest. But what's China's national interest? Broadly speaking, it's to bring equivalence globally of the Chinese system and the liberal Western democracies, to bring them on an even plane, to bring them into an even keel, and to have uh, a values-free a values judgment in terms of what uh, governance structure is actually, quote unquote, more appropriate. And if you can bring that uh, equivalence into the international discourse, all of a sudden, a lot of things begin to appear different. All of a sudden, things like uh, you know, provision of medical equipment as a pragmatic issue, people can begin to say, well, wait a minute, if this authoritarian system can help me with my basic needs and do it quickly, and this democratic system is a big mess and just passed 100,000, you know, deaths in terms of COVID and is telling me, you know, they, they can't help me. Well, at the end of the day, which is better for me? Uh, and that's a, that's a real challenge so that at the longer term, China can begin to, or continue, I should say, uh, continue the path toward uh, seeking to recalibrate the global commons and global governance uh, much more in a way that bends toward Chinese interests. There's a lot more to discuss there, but maybe just uh, in a general way uh, to, to just uh, offer those initial comments. And James, can, can, you, can you help us unpack how does China pursue these influence operations, right? Like this is something you've studied, this is something you've written about extensively. I mean, you're probably the only Mandarin speaker on this panel. Like how do you, how should we be looking at their influence operations? Um, well, so I would look at it at two different levels, Anna. I would look at it at the technical level and at the ideational or informational level. Mm -hmm. um, we actually just recently published a report that we did for the US Economic and Security Review Commission on Capitol Hill on Chinese smart cities development. 
And a big portion of that report was related to the export of these smart city technologies globally, including into Latin America. And smart cities sounds like a nice, cozy, comforting kind of idea, you know, a more efficient city, you know, more better provisioning of services. Um, but the Chinese version of smart cities has a huge so-called social management or public security and surveillance element to it. Um, and so it's part of this larger critical path dependency that we're talking about with critical infrastructure that the senator mentioned, whether it's dams or power plants or other things, um, but it creates a different kind of path dependency uh, back to the PRC. You're talking about the deployment of millions, if not billions of Internet of Things sensors all over the city uh, that facilitate surveillance and collection. And so we've already seen them deploy systems. And in fact, there's a whole section of the report that describes the systems that have been deployed in Latin America. But a good example is in Quito, in, in Ecuador, um, they have deployed an entire uh, national police surveillance system with cameras, biometrics, very similar to what we see in China, um, and then coupled it even more disturbingly uh, with this Chinese notion of the social credit score system, where you harness big data to be able to give sort of a FICA score on steroids to everyone that is not only their financial um, uh, reliability, but is also their political reliability, their social reliability, their debts, their criminal behavior. And we've seen, you know, in China, which is much more advanced. So if you want a vision of what that future looks like in Ecuador, um, 12 million people last year were denied boarding onto the trains and planes in China because of their low social credit scores. Over a half million people were pulled out of entertainment venues in Beijing prior to the entertainment beginning in a form of minority report pre-crime to say that their low social credit score meant that probabilistically they might do something wrong during that show so that they just should be removed from the venue. So you're talking about very dystopian kind of black mirror level understandings of where surveillance goes, and it's all wrapped up to take it to the highest level in this this notion of digital authoritarianism, which is this competing philosophy with liberal democracy that says, you know, the, the fundamental flaw of authoritarianism over the years was that because of the lack of democratic mechanisms, they had no ability to understand what the preferences were of the population, right? And they would sometimes get out of variance and then protest and there'd be coup d'etats and things along those lines. The Chinese have concluded that by using you know, these things, that we're giving billions of pieces of behavioral data a day willingly to these technologies, and that they can actually sense both where problems are occurring so that they can then act preemptively to isolate and end those problems, and also you know, to not be a complete Debbie Downer, they can also then provision e-government services to the population by correctly assessing where there is some sort of breakdown in governance or some breakdown of provisioning of social services. But overall, this smart city and digital authoritarianism framework is just the, you know, the positive side of the coin from the Xinjiang concentration camps and what we've seen in terms of the way they do this. Now, on the ideational and informational side, you know, clearly we know about the Chinese three warfares, the public opinion warfare, legal warfare, and psychological operations. Chairman Mao was talking about this in the early 60s. But the Chinese are also learning from others. They've learned a tremendous amount from the Russians. 
in terms of how to harness these technologies in order to shape the perceptions of foreign policymakers and foreign populations. But they're now becoming more confident and aggressive. And so even in Latin America, we see the en espanol version of the wolf warrior diplomats that we've seen in English on Twitter. Um, uh, in particular, Lee Barong, the, the ambassador in Venezuela, is a very active and aggressive wolf warrior in Spanish uh, on Twitter and other platforms, constantly uh, uh, retweeting uh, things from Maduro, from the Cubans, from other people, and really pushing this pro-China version of events, you know, China, you know, connecting the Cuban provisioning of medical services with China's provisioning of PPE and, and ventilators and other things. Um, and we see United Front Work Department organizations in Latin America carrying out influence activities. And we even have seen potentially the harbinger, and I'll, and I'll stop here, of potential future Chinese interference in elections in the very aggressive uh, monitoring that my organization did of Chinese military and Communist Party influence operations in the Taiwan presidential election in January, uh, where they used a variety of sophisticated techniques that we saw in the 2016 election, but we even saw new things like really extensive use of deep fake videos uh, mm -hmm. to be able to impersonate and vilify um, and slander individual political leaders in native language in ways that were indistinguishable from real videos. Um, so both the technical side with smart cities and digital authoritarianism and the ideational side with this new you know, wolf warrior diplomacy. Maybe, maybe David can help me with what wolf warrior is in, in Spanish uh, since I'm a, I'm a Chinese linguist. So. I think Ana can certainly speak to that, the lobos. Guerrilleros. Los guerrilleros, right? Something, something along right. those lines. Something along those lines. Yeah. Lobos fierro, un lobo fierro. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so now we've got a whole new Twitter meme that we can start a hashtag of. Okay. There you go. And James, I wanted to ask you, have you seen any deep fakes coming from the Chinese from Latin America? Because a few weeks ago, there were these videos coming out of Ecuador of just bodies dropping left and right. And it turned out that some had originated from the Russians, right, of that these videos were just overly exaggerated. Could, could you anticipate some of this potentially coming from China? Yes, uh, because of the change in leadership in Ecuador. Um, obviously, they were much more friendly to the previous regime, um, sure. and uh, and and they and you know we know that the Russians were very connected with a lot of the pro Snowden um, uh, stuff that was going on with Ecuador and and things along those lines. Um, the Chinese. Um, that's not to say that they can't make nice nice with the new regime, um, but there is a fundamental difference that I would like to highlight between Chinese information operations and Russian information operations, mm -hmm. and I think that the, the comrades at Brookings, uh, who recently put out a report on this, got this wrong, uh, which is to say that the Russians will play left against right, right against left, both sides against the middle, um, and they will seek to undermine public confidence in the legitimacy of political institutions and media institutions so that no one knows what truth is anymore. Mm -hmm. The Chinese are much more narrowly focused. We see them, we see them obsessively focused on two themes. One, refuting any criticism of China, and two, presenting the Chinese government and the Communist Party and Xi Jinping in the best possible light. 
Um, so they're, they tend to be much more narrow than that. So if, you know, so my going in assumption, which is a falsifiable hypothesis, is that if it's something that looks like it's just spreading chaos um, and trying to undermine institutions, it's much more from the Russian playbook. It's much more IRA and Kremlin and GRU playbook. If it's something that is um, almost cartoonishly trying to uh, refute criticisms of China and present China in the best possible light, it's almost certainly the United Front Work Department or the 311 base under the Chinese military. So I have a question for David, but at any point, if you guys ever want to respond to any or comment to anything that the other is saying, please feel free to do so. Eric, I follow you extensively on Twitter and I've never seen you this quiet in my entire life. Um, David, I have a quick question for you. How do you see the pandemic potentially changing or shaping the Chinese government's vision of intelligence collection with these backdoor programs like you were mentioning in, in Latin America. I mean, like you now have emerging emerging markets go, essentially going into a recession. I mean, Mexico, BBVA is, predict, is calling for a 12, up to a 12% recession in Mexico. I mean, the, the economic conditions in Latin America are quite dire and this is such an opportune moment for them as a, the essentially, I mean, to, to strike, right? What do you see China potentially doing now in the region? I see three layers uh, to take James's uh, description of, of depth of Chinese objectives. At the highest and most benign is medical services and all the related aspects of the PPE support and and that in the wake of the coronavirus and the pandemic, coming into places like Brazil and offering everything ranging from masks to uh, assistance in, in, in literally addressing the pandemic related issues. So that, that's one top level of it. And that's, that's probably the most benign aspect of the soft power. The next level down is uh, the provisional aspects of gearing and, and guiding what Huawei and ZTE and other tech firms, whether jointly invested or fully and completely owned Chinese companies will come in and use those capabilities, those platforms as means for detection along the lines that we're talking about even in the United States in terms of forestalling either a second round of COVID-19 or the next pandemic. Uh, and I often think of what are the elements that changed so dramatically after 9-11 in the United States when it came to airplane security and all the other aspects after those attacks? We will feel, and the Latin American economies and societies will feel a long-term effect from COVID-19 and the Chinese are there, shall I say in quotes, there to help. And the help is in the the adjustments and the adaptations of technology around the collection associated with that. The most nefarious and the third level down is this whole issue of uh, soft power applied to uh, uh, societies that, as you pointed out, Mexico looking at a 12% uh, decline in GDP uh, in a, kind of the worst case scenario. I put it more around the nine or 10% mm -hmm. right now, but there will be a clamor for foreign direct investment and, and uh, support that both Eric and James can speak to in more detail. 
of coming in and investing in infrastructure that then has all the surveillance capabilities around it. Because a number of these societies, starting with Mexico, are struggling with security. And as these investments are made, it comes as a package deal from the Chinese. And in, I see that much along the lines of replicating, as James described, the, the societal aspects of surveillance inside China in this, in this uh, description of the digital authoritarianism really coming into these societies. Because here's the binary choice, revolution or certainly upheaval like we see in Chile or control of those aspects. And the Chinese are there to help. I say that facetiously and obviously uh, not in a, in a way that is um, a, a positive thing in terms of these societies. So those three levels, most benign all the way to very nefarious. I think David's comment about economic recovery coming out of COVID is spot on. And to me, this is where the real opportunity is, if you want to put it that way, for China. I mean, yes, to, to have, you know, victories of, uh, you know, donations received by foreign ministers and presidents and prime ministers and, you know, photos and tweet those out. And, and there's, there's value to that, no doubt. But uh, just as David said, kind of the economies which were already struggling before COVID-19. Uh, are going to need a lot of help. And it's not just foreign direct investment. It's also, uh, frankly, debt forbearance. And, you know, this is a really, it, it's more, it's a longer conversation than we have here, but this is one of the fundamental changes that we've seen in global governance with China's entry onto the world stage, because it used to be, if you think about the debt crisis of Latin America in the 1980s and you know, all kinds of things in the Mexico peso crisis, the tequila crisis, what happened? People didn't go to Beijing for relief. They went to the Paris Club, the IMF, the World Bank, the United States, et cetera, et cetera. And what happened with those debt restructurings, you also got a healthy dose of conditionality, which did things like develop independent central banks, sound money, open economies, lower inflation, all the kinds of things that you would take as economic orthodoxy and arguably uh, made the future crises less uh, bad than they otherwise would be. With China's entrance onto the scene, you've seen countries, and I think Venezuela is the best example here, to be able to keep going back to that trough. Now, not recently, to be sure, but early on, and, what, and that continued lending and that continued ability to uh, have access to international capital, frankly, enabled uh, the destructive behavior of Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro and others in the region. I think uh, Korea and Ecuador was mentioned, and there are others that could be brought into the conversation as well. The point being is that, you know, it's a different vision. If you go to China for a loan, uh, you get the loan perhaps, or you get the debt forbearance, you're going to get other conditionality that will come with it, uh, that the Chinese will demand, but you're not going to have the type of quote unquote good governance uh, conditionality that might have come in previous years. And I think that's a very important point, Dave, that you, you touched on and I wanted to emphasize. And there's a final point here as well. Look, I mean, the economic reality is China is the largest trade partner for most of South America because of the commodities trade. It's the largest trade partner of Brazil, largest trade partner of Peru, largest trade partner of Chile. You all know that. It's the second largest trade partner of Argentina. We could go down the list. The point being is that China's market is fundamentally important. And with that economic leverage comes political leverage, because if now governments, and we've seen this exercised recently in terms of the China-Brazil relationship, 
if it becomes politically complicated, China is more than willing, and they've proven to be willing to do so, to say, well, maybe we'll import our soybeans from somewhere else. Maybe we'll import our iron ore from somewhere else. Maybe we'll, you know, rethink about those contracts. Maybe we'll delay them at the ports, what have you. And that becomes an economic uh, issue. Uh, and, you know, particularly in an economic crisis mode, it becomes really a, a, an extremely difficult issue. So we have to be aware of that. Now, it's not to say that China shouldn't be able to trade in the global economy. That's not where I'm going with this. You know, this is, you know, we fully believe in open markets and the ability to trade, the ability to invest. That's all good. But it should be done under, uh, you know, stable rule of law, transparency, anti-corruption, all the things that, you know, U.S. companies, European, many European uh, companies and others would, would take uh, as just standard operating procedures. So there's a lot going on here. Uh, COVID, I think, has accelerated some of these uh, uh, clear trends, uh, but it didn't create them. Uh, and coming out of COVID, we're going to see uh, a lot more of this uh, to come. Sure. Before we turn to Q&A, James, what are the trends you think COVID has accelerated with China and Latin America? Um, um, well, I mean, I would agree with everything that uh, David and Eric has said. Um, specifically, um, the Chinese have set up a set of parallel institutions. Mm -hmm. um, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank um, is a parallel institution to the World Bank and to various, and even the Asian Development Bank. Um, and when you take loans from them, it's easier money um, because there's not the good governance. Um, and one, the one thing I would highlight that I don't think Eric mentioned uh, was, you know, the anti-corruption measures. Um, the, you know, the anti-corruption measures that the World Bank and the IMF put in place um, were largely incompatible with a lot of the kleptocracies that they were giving money to in Africa and other places. Um, and, they, and these governments know that the Chinese are not going to put those kinds of constraints on. Um, if only because, um, as we know, senior leaders in the Chinese Communist Party are, are generally so crooked they have to screw their pants on every morning. Uh, and so they certainly can't take the moral high ground on uh, not fleecing the economy for billions of dollars. Um, but I, one other thing that I would like to highlight, though, is David mentioned a couple of companies, and, and, and so did Eric, um, is one of the things that we're really emphasizing in our Smart Cities report, too, is that you can't make a distinction between so-called private companies mm -hmm. and the reach of the Chinese state. Uh, that's not to say that all Chinese companies are state-owned companies, but the issue is the Chinese government's view of extraterritoriality means that they don't regard Huawei USA as a U.S. company. They regard it as a Chinese company. They don't regard U.S. citizens, um, Chinese nationals who have changed their citizenship as having changed their citizenship because they don't recognize dual nationality. So that poor kid from Georgetown um, who was a U.S. citizen born in the U.S. and traveled to China on a U.S. passport that's being held on an exit ban in China because his parents had PRC passports is because the Chinese don't recognize his U.S. citizenship. They don't recognize Guo Wenguei's UAE citizenship. And when they think about Huawei and ZTE, when you look at the national intelligence law and that clause that says that any Chinese company has to comply with state security personnel that want to do lawful intercept, even in a foreign country, they don't draw a distinction between Huawei Venezuela and Huawei um, technologies in China. And so what that means is that those Chinese companies have to comply. And there's a clause in the law that says they can't tell the host nation or even the non-Chinese citizen employees of their own 
rep company that they're complying with state security personnel for surveillance. So the whole Chinese system in terms of its relationship internationally with mercantilism and global trade is designed to facilitate surveillance collection and being used as platforms for intelligence operations. I mean, I think that's an incredibly important point to end on right before we turn to Q&A. And I think we have a lot of questions and regretfully we will not be able to get to everybody's question. I'm trying to summarize as many of them as possible. Um, so our first question is, and I think I'm just going to pose this to everybody and to the extent that everybody can answer this because I'm not sure who has who can. Um, it, it is reported that Chinese entities now control nearly half of global lithium production and 60% of electric battery produ production capacity. In South America, China has reportedly invested 4.2 billion in lithium deals in the past two years. To what extent does investment in lithium extraction in Latin America's lithium triangle factor in China's in China's broader tech strategy and how this supports industry upgrading as described in China's policy towards the region? Um, well, um, you know, David and Eric, if you have something to say, I actually have done a, a fair bit of work in this area. Um, and this is a subset of the larger rare earths discussion about Chinese control of raw materials. But lithium is in particularly important because as we all know, um, just look at the devices in front of you right now. We are all still slaves to the batteries in these devices. Um, and that is also true of the um, electric vehicle revolution, which is an absolutely critical part of China's technology development, as well as, as, well as other uses of these lithium ion batteries. Um, and Bolivia in particular is a very important source of ground lithium. Um, mm -hmm. The largest source of lithium, you know, just to sort of, you know, bridge it over is of course on in Afghanistan. And so one of the consequences of China now filling the gap in Afghanistan as we depart is, is because of their desire to get access to the raw earth minerals, including lithium in Afghanistan. And China has a mercantilist economic model, which does not believe in world spot markets. So rather than deal with the world spot market for oil, they would rather lock in Angola and other sweetheart countries like that into these deals where they can have 50-year leases on specific refineries um, because they don't trust the spot market. And they treat, they're treating rare earths the same way. Um, not only that, but they're also willing to commit all the environmental violations to actually do the processing of those rare earths, which is the reason why we don't have any rare earths processing in the United States right now. Um, so that's an absolute, you know, if you want to think about the, the most foundational technologies in your life, the most foundational technologies in the information revolution um, and the even the green revolution going forward, lithium turns out to be one of the most central things. And, um, you know, the Bolivian and the lithium triangle in South America, I think, I, I can't actually think of a raw material in South America that is more valuable to China than that. Let me just add, I think, to a larger point, Hannah, James, uh, to, to this question. And it goes to the philosophy of the Chinese, which is fundamentally that the rules of engagement of the international order were written not only at a time when they were weak, but they were written at a time in which we were the ones, the United States, the West in general, did it at their expense. 
and so they play by and they have a new playbook that is not by the rules that we have known. And I call this the assault on the international order that James just described as it applies to lithium. Spot markets should apply, but they don't do it that way. They go into Africa, they go into places like Bolivia, and they cut their 50-year uh, leases and the sorts of things. The other point I would make as well is that they will stop at nothing when it comes to their national security determination. As the Middle Kingdom, they are going to go find those raw materials, bring those out, and ensure that their 1.3, 1.4 billion people are stronger tomorrow than they are today, and they will stop at nothing. Let's just be real clear about that, and that includes in Latin America. That's a fair point. Uh, the next question, I think this is mainly a question to uh, Eric. Eric, what is the future of the, if you had a crystal ball in front of you right now, what do you predict to be the future of the Belt and Road Initiative in Latin America? Do you, do you foresee more countries rather joining the Belt and Road Initiative? You know, if I had a crystal ball, I'd be using it on the stock market right now. I wouldn't be on this uh, webcast. So uh, <laughs> I don't have a crystal ball. Slightly uh, but, offended, uh, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm happy to offer a, a minute or two of thoughts on this. I mean, I think, you know, Belt Road is clearly initially for the Eurasian mainland. And mm -hmm. Latin America and the Caribbean are far away from China. And, you know, I think it's been uh, a Johnny-come-lately exercise, broadly speaking, uh, in the Latin America and Western Hemisphere context. Nonetheless, there are a lot of projects and initiatives that have been round up into the Belt Road Initiative at this point. Uh, and I think China has woken up to some strategic nodes within Latin America that can certainly form uh, more of a global uh, connectivity for some of their uh, trade and economic and indeed political ambitions. One of those clearly is Panama uh, and the canal. Uh, but we've also seen uh, interest in other ports and infrastructure and things like that. I mean, it's interesting. Latin America is not Africa. Latin America is not Asia. Latin America does have rule of law. It may be imperfect, but they have rule of law. Latin America does have democracy as the prevailing governance structure. It may be imperfect, but it's there. Uh, Latin America shares, broadly speaking, Western values. And obviously, when I say Latin America, I'm including the English-speaking Caribbean as well. Uh, so there is a basis here of divergence. And, you know, it's interesting. I've talked to some Chinese officials over the years and others. And, you know, when you ask them, what are your thoughts about Latin America? Sometimes you get this response of, look, that's a complicated place. It's a complicated place to do business. It's not Africa. I mean, you have a different structure, different expectations, community involvement, uh, things that U.S. companies, U.S. investors have been, you know, learning for a long time. So, this is a different scenario here. The one thing I would say though, is Chinese are very smart, very sophisticated, and they have, I mean, they, they learn, the, the, the investors learn very quickly. Uh, and so, you know, while they made some really uh, egregious mistakes uh, early on in this century in terms of some of their investment activities, some of their trading activities, those mistakes have largely now been, uh, you know, overcome as a new way, a new more sophisticated approach has taken place, just as a learning process has occurred. So that is all to say that Belt and Road, I mean, I think it will still be there. I think it will still be appealed to as the broader sort of Chinese engagement. But at the end of the day, I don't see Belt and Road as applying in the same way to the Western Hemisphere as perhaps it does in Central Asia or in Southeast Asia or in, the, in some of the African countries. 
Okay, this one's for all of you. Uh, do you think that China is interested in engineering political change to install governments that are aligned with its interest? Uh, uh, which countries, if so, which countries do you think are most vulnerable? Can I just start with that? I'll make a very quick answer. I think the answer is no. Uh, mm -hmm. China, in my view, doesn't, China values stability uh, for its interests. And China has proven a willingness to work with, you know, Hugo Chavez and, you know, Jair Bolsonaro, right? You know, in some ways, the country reacts to the region as the way other international investors would, certainly from a mercantilist model, as, as James has, has clearly mentioned and accurately so. But the point is, it's not about regime change in Latin America. It's about the promotion of Chinese interests, right? And to the extent stability promotes those interests, they're very interested in doing that. Uh, now, if there is a, a political uh, advantage to be gained, for perhaps by uh, you know uh, positioning the United States as is is interested in regime change or in trying to undermine some U.S. allies in the region, then sure, there's a political component there that might be pursued. But from my perspective and what I've observed is that broadly speaking, the Chinese really aren't in this to overthrow you know, governments. If they were more interested in the ideology of the region, their closest economic partner would be Cuba. And clearly that's not the case. Their, their closest economic partner is the larger economies that are commodities-based. Of course, James. Um, I agree. Uh, the Chinese are Marxists in, in, in many senses, um, but mostly in the sense that they believe uh, that money talks. Um, and so they're much less interested in politics than they are in using the power of money. Their ability to mobilize resources um, in Latin America through the combination of free trade agreements and strategic partnerships show up with large delegations uh, where government ministries are paired with Chinese national companies, are paired with state banks, and they can line up large amounts of financing, um, and they can make all those linkages in ways that the U.S. government has sort of lost the um, uh, bubble on how to do anymore. Um, and so that that is their version of Belt and Road in, in Latin America, and there's been some good work done on those strategic partnerships. Um, they also know that, you know, and, and by the way, when they say, well, the five principles of peaceful coexistence and we don't interfere in the internal affairs of other countries, um, you know, I'll throw the BS flag at that and just say um, they know that one of the perks of being a great power is to interfere in the internal affairs of other countries. Mm -hmm. um, but they also are terrible at it. Uh, not that we're very good at it, but they're terrible at it. All you have to do is look at Indonesia in 1965. Um, you know, 600,000 communists are slaughtered. Um, you know, when they tried to suborn that regime. Um, that's why you see the ecumenical or agnosticism or, you know, uh, ideological atheism that we see where they can do, they can be simultaneously friends with Bolsonaro and with Maduro. Um, uh, and they ultimately believe that their ability to mobilize and leverage large volumes of capital, technology, and resources will ultimately succeed and that they don't need to muck around in politics. A question I'm not prepared to answer today because like the crystal ball uh, that Eric does not have, I don't have it either. But what I am fascinated to see is whether China will change its tactics into the future as we talk about post-COVID, for example. Will it find with technology the ability to get more friendly governments, if not outright replacing them, to their benefit? 
if they feel threatened by it? And will they take on the United States much more as an active protagonist encountering the United States in the region? I throw those out as questions to ponder as we look into the future to that very important question that you just asked, Sana. I completely agree with my colleagues. Today, they're not about regime change. They are about influencing very strategically and very uh, laser-focused issues like Taiwan and getting a Latin American country to reverse their position in support of Taiwan. And so much to what uh, James said earlier, they, they will push back on criticisms of China. They will push back on criticism of Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. But their objectives are still quite narrow in terms of how they leverage and influence. But I'm not sure that's the future of China in the region when it comes to what they wish to do. I think it's a really important point, uh, and it goes to the the heart of of what I think we've been saying. This is not a this is not a static you know uh, exercise here. Uh, and coming out of COVID, it's going to be a different world. Uh, and the question is, what's the shape of that? Uh, and I think David's exactly right. Uh, China does have interesting uh, new methods, but this, I think the strategic uh, interest remains the same, and that's to promote China's core interests. It's not development in you know, Bolivia or Northeast Brazil. I mean, these are issues that the United States brings to the table, that Western you know, countries bring to the table in terms of economic development and you know, poverty alleviation and all the things that we might do. That's not China's interest in Latin America. Um, and, and, and I think that will probably remain the same. Just one very quick grace note uh, is I wasn't meaning to suggest that the relationship between China and Brazil today is without complications. It's certainly complicated. Uh, but to say that uh, China's equally willing to, uh, to engage with Brazil to the extent Brazil wants to engage with China as it is with the, country, the other countries of the region. I think the point that David raised about Taiwan, I mean, that's, that's another important question to, to start considering now post-COVID, right? Does Taiwan's success in handling the health crisis, did they just put a target on their back? Did Taiwan now just make it so that China is now going to start aggressively courting the countries that, I mean, also in, in addition to the other Taiwan-related matters that China will now go after them for, but also now start aggressively courting the rest of the countries in Latin America that recognize them? I mean, James, do you foresee that as something that China could potentially do? Because, I mean, yeah, that's low-hanging fruit, right? Haiti's low-hanging fruit. Nicaragua's low-hanging fruit. Right, but at the same time, uh, Pompeo and the administration are all in on Taiwan, and you know it's worth remembering from an ideological perspective that the Guomindang, the KMT in Taiwan, and the CCP uh, were both set up as Leninist parties at exactly the same time by the Soviet Comintern, and Taiwan is a threat to China because it represents uh, an example of a refutation of the argument that Chinese culture is incompatible with democracy. Um, because here you have a Chinese Leninist party that got to a certain level of socioeconomic status and then listened to the mandate of the people and democratized itself and did a very good job of responding to COVID, despite the fact that 5% of the Taiwanese population at any given time is on the mainland, despite the, the incredible economic intertwining of those two economies the, and, the, and the trade and the movement of people and everything else, they could have been a hotspot in the Chinese pandemic uh, mm -hmm. because of all of that connectivity. And instead they were an exemplar in how to handle it. 
So they, they basically destroy every Chinese shibboleth that they want to put out on the street about how you should be governed in the 21st century, which is why they're going after them so ruthlessly, because they have to get rid of that contrary example. Mm -hmm. I mean, that perspective is, that's that's fascinating. Thank you. Um, guys, I think we have gone over our time and I think it's everybody's lunchtime. So, I mean, if we were in person, the audience would be clapping for you and thanking you. So instead, I will be doing that myself thank you all and you know another thank you to senator cassidy thank you to the council of the americas for partnering with us on this eric i don't know if you have any final words for us uh as my partner in this fantastic event this was a great idea to, to put this together uh only simply to say thank you anna to you and your terrific technology team and all the folks uh, that uh, really did the back end of this uh, program uh, as well as uh, fellow panelists who I thought were outstanding. Uh, present company accepted, I think the panel was outstanding. One very quick final point, and that is that in politics, you can't beat something with nothing. So it's one thing to analyze what China may be doing in the Western Hemisphere. It's quite another for the United States to take this seriously and really actively contend for the region and recognize what's at stake, showing a more generous uh, posture and really taking some steps and actions that are mutually beneficial with the United States interests and also with regional interests. Uh, that's the topic, Anna, for, I think for a next uh, webinar in terms of what we might do, there's a lot there to discuss. But other than that, it's been a lot of fun and uh, back to you. Nope, this was great. God willing, we can do this in person very, very soon. Um, thank you all again. And like we said, this will be uh, in your inboxes very shortly. Take care, everyone.